through. How's everybody? Yeah, good. Good, dizzy, good. It is summertime. People are coming and going. That means we get uh, some old friends that come back and visit us during the summer, people that are, you know, camping out at the lake or they go to other churches, but then they, they come and hang out with us. Uh, if you're a newbie with us, uh, uh, where the heck you been? We're glad you're here. Uh, and if you're just one of the regulars, we're so grateful for your faithfulness uh, as well. Uh, over the next few weeks, yes, you had a question? Signaling my daughter, yes. Over there, Evie, you can sit over there. Um, over the next few weeks, we are going to explore, between me and Pastor Adam, we're going to explore the depth, the breadth, the height, the length of the good news uh, of the gospel. How many of you know the word gospel means good news, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, there are times when even God's people have to discover or rediscover the gospel, because the good news is even better than you think it is. Uh, Adam did a message a number of months ago where he said, you know, it's, it's really nice when a business actually gives you more than what you expect. You know, you go, oh, they didn't have to do that. You know, the, the, uh, well, God is uh, the best businessman out there. The gospel is good news, and it's even better uh, than uh, what you, uh, you might expect. And I want to start today uh, by telling you uh, about uh, a summertime much like this one, uh, 30 nine years ago in Williams Bay, Wisconsin. Williams Bay, Wisconsin. It's on beautiful Lake Geneva, uh, not too far north of the Illinois and uh, Wisconsin border. I'm, an, I'm a Chicago kid. Uh, any other Chicagoans in our midst? There we got a Chicagoan. There we go. Um, the summer of 1970, in the summer of 1970, is where a 14-year-old guy, namely me, met the Lord Jesus Christ for the first time 39 years ago this summer. And as we were talking about what the gospel was, as Adam and I and the rest of the staff were talking about the full good news of the gospel, uh, I was reminded of what my conversion experience was like. And I'd like to share a little bit about that experience. Uh, I was 14 years old. I had just finished my freshman year in high school. And I had gone away to a summer camp that someone had told me was going to be really fun. Now, I was not a good church kid. I wasn't a good kid at all. Uh, I was uh, your typical uh, middle-class suburban, uh, egocentric little greed ball of a 14-year-old. And um, I went to the camp because it was at Lake Geneva. And I mean, look at that. That's, you know, you got boating and horseback riding and fun and girls and, you know, all that sort of thing. And I went to the camp because it was going to be a riot. And it was a riot all day long from the time you got up until the time the sun went down. But after the sun went down, every night they preached the gospel. Every night they preached the gospel. And obviously I'm, I'm grateful because uh, there on the shores of Lake Geneva in Williams Bay is where I met the Lord. And the gospel appeal that caught my heart one night was when uh, the guy who was speaking talked about this imaginary story. It's not in the Bible. I don't think it ever really happened. But he was trying to, to illustrate some portion of God's love. And this was the story that he told. He said that there was a bridge keeper who kept a drawbridge. It was the kind of drawbridge that, you know, when they build the railroad to go from, you know, the east to the west, you know, that there are, uh, you know, there are sometimes where the, the, the rails go over a low river and it's a drawbridge, but it's just for trains and this guy had to live out that way and you know there were ocean going vessels coming up the river and then there were trains that were you know that were coming his job was to make sure the bridge was up when it was supposed to be up and down when it was supposed to be down and he lived there by himself 
And uh, in living there by himself, he had one and only one son. And there, living by himself with his one and only one son, one day the, the ship is coming up the river and he, you know, he pulls the, the big gear or lever, kind of think that art deco, you know, strength of the arm. You know, he pulls the lever back and the gears turn and up goes the drawbridge and the ship passes underneath the drawbridge. And as the ship is passing under the drawbridge, he looks up the way on the railroad track and there is a passenger train uh, ahead of schedule bearing down on the drawbridge. And as he sees that, he realizes, I've got to hurry and get the drawbridge back down. He looks down into the gears and his only son has fallen in and among the gears of the drawbridge. And in an instant, he knows he has a choice to make. He said, I can try to save my son and it will cause the train and all of the passengers on the train to wreck or I can close the drawbridge and save the people on the train at the life and the cost of my one and my only son. And the drawbridge keeper in, in, in his duty and in his love for people who don't even know that he exists pushes the lever closed, sacrifices the life of his son and the passenger train goes on by and the people on the train are not even aware of the sacrifice that has allowed them to live. And, you know, it's a metaphor. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a picture of the sacrifice of God's only son so that we can live. And that particular night, my heart was moved. It's a, it was a highly emotional appeal. Uh, you know, it, it encapsulates some aspects of the gospel. But what I felt was, I felt like, I felt like, I'm on the train just going off and doing my own thing and I'm totally oblivious to the sacrifice that God has made for me in his only son, Jesus. And, you know, Jesus died so that I could live. And that night, I accepted the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, his life for my life. But that particular gospel presentation, for which you you have to understand, I'm really grateful. I mean, it took 39 years later I still want to be a follower of Jesus. But that particular night, the the gospel presentation was all about accepting God's free gift for me. That's what the gospel was. The Father has, has paid this unimaginable sacrifice, and the gift is life, free life for you in Jesus Christ. There was nothing in that gospel presentation about God's intention or God's plan for the ages, or God's heart for all of the world, all there was in that gospel appeal was, is the Son of God has died for you. Will you accept his free gift, or will you not accept it? In short, the entire gospel presentation was all about me. God's done this for you. What are you going to do about it? And that actually kind of fits an egocentric little 14-year-old greed ball growing up in suburban Chicago in the middle of the 20th century because we live in a consumer society where what? It's all about me. It's all about my needs. And the gospel presentation that I heard that night was true. It was an accurate portrayal that God did sacrifice his only son so that I might live, but it was only this much of the gospel. And over the years, After having accepted the free gift of life in Jesus Christ, the ensuing 39 years have been the discovery in my life of how wide and how deep and how high and how long through the ages God's gifts 
of the gospel is to me. Would you pray with me so that we can just really tune our hearts to hear the word of God? Would you pray? Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the freedom to assemble and the freedom that's in you. We thank you that your goodness did sacrifice your only son for us. But now, Father, I pray that you would add the Holy Spirit to my words, that you'd cause your scripture to come alive. Lord, I ask that you would cause our hearts to rise up and to realize that all of our fountains are still in you after all these years. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now today I want to share two texts. Both of them stand as a significant text, one in the New Testament and one in the Old Testament. These are texts uh, that are uh, huge in our understanding of all that God has done. How many of you know God's pretty smart? He's pretty big, pretty powerful, and he's been around a while, right? Well, these two texts at least are sign markers that point us in the direction of God's greatness, his goodness, his power, and his plan for all of humanity. And the first text is in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Now, uh, Romans is one of the letters that Paul wrote uh, uh, to various churches. He had never actually been to Rome at that time. Um, but he was planning on visiting. And this is like, you know, the magnum opus of uh, the Apostle Paul, especially in our Western Enlightenment culture. Boy, I'll tell you, the, you know, the, the smarty pants and the intellectual people, they just, they just lap up Romans because it's the most theological of the letters. And how many of you remember back in uh, high school, your, your high school English teacher said, if you write a paper, you got to have a thesis statement, right? Don't you like reliving high school English? Well, this is the thesis statement of all of the book of Romans. And a thesis statement is very simple. Paul, writing to this church that he hopes to visit later, says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile, because in Paul's world, that's the division. You're either, you know, the people of God, Israel, or you're not the people of God. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. This is the thesis statement for this incredible book. You click on this thesis statement and it explodes into 16 chapters, 12, uh, 11 chapters of theology, and then followed by chapter, one, chapter 12, verse 1, then application for what that theology means. And, uh, and it'll blow your mind, and literally people have spent all of their lives studying just this one letter. And this is the core of it. And we encounter in this one word that is familiar, gospel, good news, we think of the gospel as, I'm a sinner, Jesus died for my sins, he paid the price so I can go to heaven, and that, that's true, that's part of the gospel. But there's another word that is, it, it fits well in church, it blends in really well with the stained glass windows, uh, but we don't really know so much what it means, that's the word righteous. And Paul is saying that in the good news of the gospel of the kingdom of God, the righteousness of God is revealed. And that's even the word apocalypse. That's the word like draw back the curtain. If you want to know what God is like and what true righteousness is, you'll find it in the gospel. 
He's, you know, Paul wants to draw back the curtain on who God is. But this word righteousness, it, you know, we don't use it very much in everyday life, do we? Um, there used to be the, this, the Cheetos kitty that ate Cheeto cheese puffs, and they said he was a righteous kitty. And uh, I think uh, Ferris Bueller was a righteous dude, if you remember Ferris Bueller's day off. But, you know, it's not a word that you really hear very much in everyday society. It fits well in church, and we can talk about righteousness, and we can feel all Christian and, you know, the like. But what is the righteousness of God? Because it's the centerpiece of what God has to say. And I want to give you three views of the righteousness of God, because it's the heart of the gospel. And I want to go from this first view that's on the board now I want, to, I want to give you three views. One, the first one is uh, not very familiar to us. The second one, slightly more familiar. And the third one, I think you'll find, is extremely familiar. And then we want to look at the Old Testament roots of all of this. And I got this from uh, N.T. Wright, the Bishop, Bishop of Durham. He's an Anglican um, prelate in, uh, well, obviously in, in England. Um, and the first view of the righteousness of God is that in the gospel... Remember, we're talking about what is the gospel for the next few weeks. In the good news of Jesus Christ, God is demonstrating his faithfulness to people like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do you think of the righteousness of God like that, that God is keeping his promises to other people? I mean, that night on the shores of Lake Geneva at Williams Bay, all I knew is that Jesus had died for my sins, and I didn't know who Abraham was, I didn't know Isaac, I didn't know Jacob, and the idea that in that moment that when a 14-year-old would turn to God, that somehow God was fulfilling a promise that he had made, oh my goodness, now we're talking 4,000 years previously to someone, that never occurred to me. And oddly enough, because we are all 14-year-old egocentric little greed balls, we don't think in terms of that the gospel is first and foremost an expression of God's faithfulness to a specific guy who lived 4,000 years ago. But this is what uh, N.T. Wright is pointing us towards, that when the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write these words, and he says, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, that the first thing that was on God's mind and on uh, uh, Paul's mind is that God is keeping, uh, at the time, a 2,000-year-old promise, and now, you know, uh, for for me and for you, a 4,000-year-old promise. How many of you all have ever considered your conversion experience as God keeping his promise to one guy who lived 4,000 years ago? Have you ever thought of the gospel in those terms? I told you, he's big, he's powerful, he's got a great memory, he's been around a long time, and when God makes a promise, he keeps his promise. And so this is the least familiar of our understanding of God's righteousness. There's a second view of the righteousness of God that is a little bit more legal, and we might, uh, we might find ourselves a little bit more at home with that, and that is simply this, that in the court of God, we are found not guilty. And uh, not even in the, in the modern U.S. sense of not guilty, but in Paul's day, in the day in which the Holy Spirit inspired these words, this not guilty verdict is not, oh, dude, you dodged a bullet. This is, you were dragged into court, injustice was done to you, and the judge has come, and he has set things straight. 
The low people are now on top. The, t- the high people that were oppressing the low people are put down on the bottom. It's not just not guilty like I get to walk out, you know, uh, get out of the court as a free man. It was that we're vindicated. Yeah, don't think of not guilty in the sense of, oh, well, we just got the verdict we wanted. Think of not guilty as that the true guilty party is brought to justice. That would be the devil. And that those who have been under the oppression and the thumb of the devil, those people who were on the low place are now brought to the top. Uh, this, this 14 or 15-year-old girl who found herself pregnant with the Son of God when she prayed a prayer that we call the Magnificat in, in Luke's gospel, you know, she, she understands this kind of not guilty. She says, the rich God has sent away empty and the poor are filled with good things. The Holy Spirit inspiring Paul 2,000 years ago has in mind that God keeps his promise to one guy that he selected a long time ago and that God comes as the just and righteous judge who gives the smarty pants their comeuppance and he raises up those people that are low and oppressed. How many of us have ever been oppressed? We've, we've had injustice done to us. We've had wages withheld. We've had inheritances that were supposed to come to us that the lawyers ate up. Uh, we've had people that unjustly accused us that caused us to be fired at work or somebody else took credit for what we did and got that promotion. I mean, if we wanted to go around the room and have a Crimea River session, every single one of us has suffered injustice. And yet, in our society, there are even greater injustices. People who can't get a decent education. People who, who because the, they speak with an accent or they don't look like us, they don't even get a fair shake in society. We're talking about the kind of not guilty verdict God in the gospel of the kingdom of God is showing that he is a true and a righteous and a just judge. These are the first two ideas that, um, that Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, had. And the second one we're a little bit more comfortable with than the first one. But the truth is, is that number three is where most of us live. And that is that in the court of law, we are found not guilty like O.J. was not guilty. Now think about this for a minute. We stand before that great white throne. We stand knowing full well that I did that thing or I thought that thing or I didn't do that thing or I was the guy. But Jesus stands in my place and says, I'll take the punishment and the gavel comes down again and we are found not guilty when in fact you me, God, and everybody knows that I am guilty. And for most of us, this is our understanding of the gospel, number three, is that even though I'm guilty, Jesus paid the price and I've gotten all free. Now, what I'd like to suggest is that, is that it's more like a funnel. The, the not guilty like OJ is this much of the gospel. The the not guilty like when God, the righteous judge, comes and sets everything in order, that's this much of the gospel. And that the the full expression of the good news in Jesus Christ is in fact that God is faithful to the promises that he made to the likes of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Everything that you find in the first bullet point will contain the second. And everything you find in the second will contain the third. But the third won't contain the second. 
It just means it's a get-out-of-jail-free card. And the second won't contain the first. Do you follow me? Because Paul, who in his own right was a brilliant and educated man, now you add the inspiration of the Holy Spirit at a time when all of the world was changing in the Roman Empire, Paul says this is the thesis statement for what the gospel is really like. And it's our intention, Pastor Adam will take the reins back to next week and the week after, to, for us to explore what the gospel was, is all about. Because as a 14-year-old, all I knew was that God paid the price for my sins and that I get to keep on rolling on the train and somebody else paid the price. It took me, in my personal walk with Jesus, another five years to figure out that I owed God any kind of response at all other than accepting the free gift of Jesus Christ. It took me five years to realize that what happened on the shores on that beautiful idyllic lake in the middle of a, of a teenage summer, that what happened then actually created in me the need to respond to the goodness of God. It took me five years even to realize there was a response. And it's taking the ensuing 30 years, the ensuing 30 years, to begin to walk out the implications of that response. How big is the gospel? Is the gospel so big or so small that we just get it in one bite? Or is the gospel something that takes 35, 39, 49, 50, 60, 70 years? No, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we're still laying hold of the implications of the gospel. And I know you're thinking, well, is that how long this sermon's going to go on? Well, maybe. All right? You see, today's gospel kind of runs like this. Sure, we all know that I really am guilty, but because of Jesus, I'm not guilty. Thanks, Jesus. See you later. Right? Today's gospel is a fashion accessory as I ride on the train. Today's gospel is something that I simply add to my life. You know, I, you know, I prefer this kind of music. I have this kind of political persuasion. And oh, yeah, I'm also a Christian. You know, make sure that the bag matches the shoes and that the haircut looks good and, you know, we're fine. Rarely does my shoes match my bag. But you know what I mean. Today's gospel is an accessory when, in fact, the true gospel could take all of eternity for us to understand the implications. All right, so if the righteousness of God is revealed in the fact that God the Father keeps a 4,000-year-old promise, what promise are we talking about? And that takes us to our second and our base scripture, for uh, at least for today. And that's out of Genesis chapter 12, verses 1, 2, and 3. This is what I think the Holy Spirit had in mind. It's certainly what Paul had in mind um, as he's writing about the righteousness of God. And um, the text is up here on the screen, but before we read it, well, what about the first 11 chapters of Genesis? Don't they count? And uh, suffice it to say, you know, here's the 30-second commercial version. The first 11 chapters of Genesis is, how did we get into the mess we're in? And starting in chapter 12, it's how does God get us out of the mess we're in? And we're talking Genesis 12 all the way to Revelation chapter 59, or however many chapters there are. So from Genesis 12 through to the end of the book, It's God getting us out of the mess that we've put ourselves in. And Genesis 1 through 11 talk about God's perfect creation, the cosmic purposes that God had, and then the fact that we found more ways to screw it up, you know, than there are ways to, I don't know, do whatever. 
But Genesis chapter 12, mark it down. If, if you haven't marked Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3 in your Bible, you really should, because it's the beginning of God's answer to our trouble. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. So the Lord says to this guy, some guy, Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land that I'll show you, and I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I'll make your name great, so that you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This is where God's plan starts. There are hints about the gospel as far back as when God addresses Adam and Eve. Well, the heck, there's hints about the gospel even in the creation story as the land comes up and rises again on the third day. But those are metaphors. Those are pictures. There's God saying, you know, through the seed of the woman, I'm going to crush the head of the serpent. But you want to know where the gospel begins to find feet, where God finally takes action for us. It's right here. And that is that one guy in an ancient time, God singles this guy out. And, you know, the, the biblical scholars, they actually tell us that there was a migration that was going on. We've already talked about high school English class. What about World Civ when you were in high school? You remember the Fertile Crescent, you know, stretches from the you know, Mesopotamia, the land between two rivers, kind of goes up and then comes down through Israel and on down to Egypt, right? There was this massive migration uh, uh, just 2,000 years B.C. There was this massive migration of people who were following the Fertile Crescent, they were Arameans, and they were wandering people, and they were, they were floating. And it was, this migration took like 200 years. It was generations of people. And in this massive migration of people, there's one guy who doesn't look any different than any other guy. And one night, God comes to him and says, I'm going to choose you. And that's where we get these verses, 12 verses 1 through 3. This was Abraham's introduction to God. Abraham didn't know God. Abraham grew up worshiping idols. But Abraham's introduction to God was simply this. God calls, God will accomplish, and God's going to do that because he has a purpose. He, God, has a purpose. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what it would be like to be plucked out of anonymity because somebody great and powerful beyond your conception wants to accomplish something, and he says, I'm going to pick you. Can I, can I pick on you for a second, Brian? Can you imagine Bill Gates just calling you up one day, saying, Brian, I've got a project, and I want and I need your help. And you're going, who, me? I mean, Bill Gates has got all the money in the world. Bill Gates could do the whole financial you know, bailout for the whole world just by writing a check. He's got everything he needs, and he's as smart as a whip. He's so smart, he drops out of an Ivy League school and creates a corporation that changes the world. How smart is that? So somebody might call up Brian, who's as smart as a whip and has all of the resources in the world, and says to Brian, I need and want you to accomplish my purposes. And I, I like Brian. He's faithful. He's true. He's a good man. He's filled with love. You know, but let's just face it. If you're going to pick your team, do you want Bill Gates first or do you want Brian first? Marilyn says she wants Brian first, right? 
And so Brian might say something like, well, Mr. Gates, you know, that's really nice, but, you know, I don't know anything. And, you know, Mr. Gates says, well, I'll teach you as you go along the way. And then Brian says, well, you know, I got a house, I got a mortgage, it'll be paid off when I retire, but I don't have a lot of resources. And Mr. Gates says, don't worry, I'll give you all the resources that you need. One guy plucked out of anonymity by someone great and powerful, and you know, the, 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 the metaphor breaks down at a certain point, that's for sure, you know, between Bill Gates and the Almighty. Uh, but one guy plucked out of anonymity, and this is the introduction. God calls him, God is the one who's going to accomplish it, and God is doing it. Why? Because God has a purpose. Let's not forget that, that the gospel includes the fact that God has a purpose. 14-year-old kid on the shores of Williams Bay, Wisconsin, I had no clue what the purposes of God were. I just know I was on the out and somebody could put me on the in. So let's look at these, these verses, 12, 1 through 3, because they're Abraham's beginnings and they are our beginnings as well. No matter when you came to know the Lord Jesus, no matter, well, maybe you're still investigating the claims of the Lord Jesus, Abraham's beginnings are actually like our beginnings. And here is what the text says, 12, 1 through 3. The first thing the text says is, leave. The first word in the text is, leave. Leave your country, your people, and your father's household. Now, can you imagine what this would have been like? Because this was a world, well, you know, we live in the, the country, we live in a place where family roots go pretty deep, but nothing like it would have been 4,000 years ago. Leave your country, your, your, your national identity, your ethnicity, everything that defines you as a person, this wandering Aramean who was their father, Abraham. You know, this is who he was. You know, he, you know, he wasn't that Babylonian scum and he wasn't those Egyptian hoity-toities. He, by God, was an Aramean. You know, leave, leave your, your, your ethnic identity. And then it says, and leave your people, which which meant leave your culture, leave your way of doing things. Now, you know, I happen to think that the way people should talk should sound exactly like a Midwestern dialect. You see, I don't have an accent. You guys have an accent, right? But the British people say, we don't have an accent. Everybody over in America has an accent. You see, because our culture is normative for us, right? And God is picking one guy out of obscurity and he's saying, leave your ethnic identity. He's saying, leave your cultural identity. And then, oh, now this is careful. Be careful here. Leave your family. Well, you don't understand. Family's all you got. Now, I'm in favor of family. Part of God's salvific acts in my life was to take me out of a dysfunctional family and to put me into a functional family. I didn't know what good family was until I married that woman right over there. She taught me what good family was within our walls, and her extended family taught me what good family was outside of our walls. So I'm not against family, but we need to see that God says, leave your ethnic identity, leave your cultural identity, and even leave your family identity, even a good family identity. It's the beginning of the gospel. You cannot begin the gospel without the word leave. This gospel, the one we're talking about, God's faithfulness to the patriarchs, requires something of us. 
This gospel requires that we leave our old ways behind. This gospel requires leaving and not simply adding forgiveness as, a, as, a, as an accessory to our life. How many of you would like to have forgiveness in your pocket? So you know you're walking along, you screw up at school, you reach in your pocket, oh, I got me some forgiveness, you know? You know, you mess up, you're mean to your kids, you kick the dog, oh, you reach in your pocket, you got some forgiveness. That's great. You know, I recommend that, you know, having forgiveness is good. It makes life great. I get forgiven. And my family will tell you, I get forgiven a lot. But I want you to understand that the gospel that is revealed in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, the gospel that is God keeping his promises to the patriarchs requires something more than just having forgiveness in your pocket. It requires leaving. It requires forsaking everything for the one who called you, even the good things. Can we do that check just in our lives? Have I left all to follow Jesus? Can I really define my life as having sacrificed my view of my ethnicity, my culture, and my family? Have I left all to follow Jesus? I'm, I'm pleased to say, I mean, you know, I've been associated with this church from the inception. I can look around the room and say, I know there are people that they, that they follow Jesus at the cost of their family identity. I know there are people who have followed Jesus at the cost of career choices. They could have been this and they could have been that, but they've chosen to follow Jesus and it's taken them another route. I know people that have, have laid hold of what Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls costly grace. It's grace because it cost him and it's grace because it costs us. The beginning of this gospel, Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, begins with leaving. And then it progresses on to the word go. Where am I going? Well, you just get started. How will I know when I get there? Well, I'll tell you. Go to the land I'll show you. You see, Abraham was already a part of a migration of people. His dad probably started way down in Ur of the Chaldees, which, you know, would be almost modern-day Kuwait. His dad had already started along that migration. That This was generational. It was a couple of hundred years of a migration, and had gotten up to the top of the Fertile Crescent when his dad died. But they didn't know where they were going. And Abraham, when God called him, said, I'll show you the land. So can you imagine that, you know? Disco's got a, he's got his, he's a businessman, he's got his own practice, he's got a wife, got four beautiful kids, right? Comes home one day and says, honey, pack up, we're leaving. Really? Where are we going? I don't know, we're just going. How will we know when we get there? God will tell me. Lori, how about that? How about that? You see, this gospel requires leaving our identity, this gospel requires going on our part. These are the two requirements that God had for Abraham. It says later on, Abraham did this stuff. It says, going, it says later on, Abraham had no clue what it was about. He totally missed what, you know, you know the, the comprehension. You know, understanding's overrated. Abraham didn't understand what was going on, but he did it. And then look at the third part at what God will do. Look at what God will do. If you'll leave, if you'll go, I'll make you into a great nation. I'll bless you. I'll make your name great. You'll be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you. I'll curse those who curse you. 
and all peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. You see, our job is the leaving. Our job is the going. Actually, God's job is the hard part. God's job is the hard part. Look at the things that God said he would do for Abraham. Do We know who Abraham was, right? We've heard of him, right? Presidents have been named after him. Uh, you know, it's a, you know, it's you know, he's a part. Of, Abraham is a part of our Western culture for sure. Can anybody name one of the world rulers that was like you know the greatest power of the world four thousand years ago? Who was the somebody four thousand years ago? I'm sorry, Nebuchadnezzar uh, was about thirteen hundred years after Abraham. But you, you're working on the history. That's good, and and. You know, you're expecting me to give you like some name like Sargon the Magnificent or something. I don't, I don't know who was, the, who was the big deal then either. That's just my point. God said, I'll take this one, plucks this one out of obscurity. This one leaves, this one goes. God accomplishes his word. Who's the one we remember 4,000 years later? You know, Mr. Great and All-Powerful Oz who ruled, you know, this much space? No. We remember Abraham. God performed what he said. He made Abraham into a great nation. He blessed Abraham. He made Abraham's name great. He blessed those who blessed Abraham, and he cursed those who cursed Abraham. And all of the peoples of the earth find their point of blessing and prosperity through the lineage of Abraham. We leave. We go. God is the one who gives greatness and protection. You see... The real supernatural work of the gospel is God's action, not ours. Let's, let's define it this way. Religion is what we can do on our own. If, you know, if I've got $50,000 in the bank and I can donate 10, then religion is what I can do on my own. If, you know, if, I've, if I'm unemployed and I've got no money but I've got plenty of time, religion is what I can do on my own. I can come and I can help out. Religion is about what we are capable of. Relationship is partnering with God to see what he is capable of. What do you want, religion or relationship? Because that day, Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, that time when Abraham was picked out of obscurity, what God was really offering was an ongoing relationship. And boy, you talk about ongoing it was 25 years before the initial promises began to come true. And even after the initial promises began to come true, then God was still leading and shaping and causing Abraham to grow in his relationship with this new God named Yahweh, the I Am, Jehovah. See, religion is what we can do by our own strength, by our own smarts, our own education, our own financial strength or our time or our physical skills, but relationship is walking with God and seeing what he can do. Abraham's beginnings are, should be our beginnings. This is what the gospel is. This is what the gospel calls us to, to leave our ethnic identity, our cultural values, even our family identity, even if it's a good family, and to go when God tells us to go, he'll tell us, when, tell us when we get there. And then leaving the accomplishments to him. Okay? And then I've left this last line for the, for the next slide, God's purpose revealed. 
where God says in the end of verse 3, all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. Over the last 4,000 years, God has been mindful of this one promise that he made to Abraham. All the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. You can look these up if you're in the habit of taking notes later. In Psalm 2, it says, Ask of me, and I will give the nations as your inheritance, O uh, son of the king, anointed one. Uh, Isaiah paints a picture in chapter 60 of all of the nations coming to God's people to learn God's ways. Wouldn't that be amazing if people wanted to come to the church to figure out how to do it right? Interestingly, we've had at least one picture of that just in recent years. When Hurricane Katrina hit and FEMA foundered and nobody could get aid in and there were trucks filled with fresh drinking water but the paperwork wasn't in place so they stayed out of the destruction zone, who were the people who actually knew how to administer aid and mercy? It was the church and the federal government. Heck, bigger than the federal government, even Oprah came to people in the church and said, how did you organize? How was it that you were able to distribute goods? And the church, in that instance, the nations came to the church to learn how to administer mercy and grace and practical help in a time of trouble. Now, the problem with that example is is that it's highly exceptional when it should be normative. Isaiah says in chapter 60, Arise, shine, your light will come, and nations will come to your light. Yeah, I mean, you know, God's got light and all of that, but Isaiah 60 is for us. It's not arise, shine, and reflect God's light. It's shine with the light that God's given you. Acts chapter 2, verse 39 is where the gospel is first preached, the gospel of the kingdom of God, after Jesus has been resurrected and ascended. And Peter says, the promise is for you, it's for your children, for your grandchildren, and all who are as many as is far off. That meant people who lived yonder and people who lived a long way off, long time off. And then, oh my goodness, in Revelation, the people of every tribe, every tongue, every nation, Five times in Revelation, it talks about the fact that the fulfillment of the gospel is for the nations. All the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. Well, in the next few weeks, what, I, what I'd like us to consider is what if, what if we come again to rediscover the gospel? Maybe you weren't like me. Maybe you weren't an egocentric little 14-year-old who only wanted the get-out-of-jail-free card. Maybe you understood something of what it meant to be committed to the king and to the purposes of the king. Maybe your first commitment to Jesus was deeper and with a a much better foundation. Maybe it didn't take you five years to get a clue as to what following Jesus was about. But what if, in our comfortable state, we begin to reconsider that gospel? What if, what if our relationship with God was a part of his plan to set the world right. That's kind of cosmic, isn't it? That's, you know, that's like, Brian, you know, need your help. I'll give you the resources. I'll give you the, I'll give you the education you need. All I need is someone who's willing. I, this is a crazy way to run a railroad, but we messed it up in Genesis 1 through 11, and when God decided to set the world right, he picked one guy, Genesis chapter 12, And you know he's still doing that. God is setting the world right 
through human beings, most notably the human being called Jesus Christ of Nazareth, but he used human beings before Jesus and he's using human beings after Jesus. What if our relationship with God was part of his plan to set the world right? I didn't have God's plan in mind at all when I met Jesus. What if God decides to use people to accomplish his purposes? Well, that's just crazy because people are no darn good. You can't trust them. can't trust them any further than you can throw them. They'll let you down, even the good ones, right? I mean, even the nice people let you down. It's true. But what if God wanted to use people to accomplish his purposes? He's used some crazy people. You understand, God has used insane people. One guy walked around the king's palace naked for three years because that was his message to the nation. That's a crazy person. One guy, in his quiet time one day, he's trying to hear from God and says, I think I'll go out and marry a prostitute because that was God's message to the people at the time. They start having children, the guy and the prostitute he marries, and he starts naming the kids with names like this. You're not my kid. She was a prostitute. Maybe, he, maybe the kid wasn't his kid. God uses crazy people. God uses no-account murderers who are trying to further their career by breathing out threats and violence against God's people. That was a crazy man named Paul. And God has used slave traders like John Newton, who ended up writing Amazing Grace, and God has even used egocentric little 14-year-old greed balls to accomplish his purpose. Let's connect the dots. God wants to use you to accomplish his purpose. Oh, but I'm not a preacher. I'm retired. Guess what? God wants to use you to accomplish his purpose. Moses was retired. He was 80. God wants to use you to accomplish his purpose. You don't understand. I've screwed up my life beyond repair. God says, great, that's a good starting point. I'll patch it back together and I'll use you so that I get the glory. God couldn't possibly want to use me. I'm 14 and I'm an egocentric little greed ball. Well, yes, you are, but walk with God. He'll fix that too. What if each one of us saw our life in Christ as a response to his invitation to bless the world? What if we saw our response as the invitation to join God in blessing the whole world? And so, you know, you work somewhere and you go, well, my work's really not very glorious. Pretty much I clean bathrooms and I clean up other people's rooms. Well, what if God wants to use you where you are to bless people? You, know, you don't understand my work. My work is I'm a lawyer and uh, no disrespect to the lawyers that are here. And so I've got to skate an awfully fine line around the truth. God says, that's great because that's where I need someone to make a bold stand for the truth. You say, well... You don't understand. You know, I'm in athletics, and my job is to rip the other guy's head off. Oh, good. Then you can pray for them after you rip their head off. Okay? What if we saw our life, wherever we are, student or teacher, retired or active, glorious or not so glorious, what if we saw our life as an invitation to bless the world? And finally, the, the, the real question that we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks is, what if... 
our gospel has been too small all along? What if God's had way more in mind for us than we ever imagined? This is the biblical language for that. Eye hasn't seen. No, the ear hasn't even heard. It hasn't even entered into the mind or the heart of men all that God has prepared for those who love him. And it doesn't matter. You can say, I'm, I'm retired or I'm fixing to retire. Or you can say, I'm not very educated. It doesn't matter. You haven't even begun to ask or think or think to ask of all that God wants to do through you to bless the world. And, and you know, I'm, I'm delusional. I'm talking about us in this room. You can't imagine what God wants to do through you to bless the world. It's crazy. It's crazy. Well, we want to discover the gospel because the good news is more than we know. That's what we want to do. And part of that is to go back and to dig the wells that our ancestors dug. You see, because after Abraham came a guy named Isaac, and Isaac actually retraced his father's steps and went to the sources of the water and dug them all over again. You see, there's grace from God waiting for you to mine it back out. You know, maybe you had a godly mother, you had a, a godly grandfather. Maybe you had an example in your life. Maybe you had a mentor at some other time. And, and here is one of the ways that we could rediscover that gospel. It's to go back and dig the wells. Maybe it's not actually in your ancestry. Maybe it's in your past. You go, man, when I was young, me and God, we were hot stuff. But I've learned a lot since then and I've calmed down. Go back and dig the wells. Oh, I used to stay up all night with God. Nothing was better. Go back and dig the well. You know, I used to dance around in my room and spin in circles until I was dizzy because God made me so happy. He hasn't changed. You know, I actually dared to believe when I was 28 that God would do great things through me. But then I got a life, I got reality, and I realized I'm just a loser. Or we could go back and we could dig the wells. That's what I think God is calling us to do. And uh, Adam, do you want to do ministry time? Or? Okay, here's, here's what I'd like to do for ministry time. If you're on the ministry team, come on up. But I, I want, I want to, uh, to give a moment for the Holy Spirit to remind you of where the wells are. Do you, you know the last song that we sang, All My Fountains Are In You, Right? Hey, you know, in fact, Adam, would, could you just, like, grab the guitar and just, just sing just that? Here, I get to boss the boss around. 